I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to Pursued by a Bear from Exeunt magazine. I'm Tim Banahope. This month's podcast was going to be about international theatre, but I asked Siri how many countries there are, and this is what happened. Siri, how many countries are there in the whole wide world? Let me check on that. Here's what I found on the web for how many countries are there in the whole wide world. The answer is about 24,472. Okay, Siri, how many important countries are there in the whole wide world? Coming right up. The answer is one. London, England. Anyway, we decided to narrow the focus a bit, so we're just looking at European theatre and whether there's much difference between continental European and UK performance cultures. So this is what we've got coming up. From Grayscale, Selma Dmitrievich on Croatia and Europe. There's quite many people like you. Theatre thinker Holger Seim on race in German theatre. I've had far more racist taxi drivers in Britain than I've ever had in Germany. Rebecca Jacobson on a Twin Peaks-inspired immersive show in Berlin. To David Lynch, if he's listening, we're not infringing copyright, man. To be honest, I don't think David Lynch is listening. Anyway, Anna Gretz at Theater Treffen in Berlin talking to some critics. I could do some panting and then like... <gasps> and the mighty Chris Thorpe brings a ray of positivity and sunshine to the show. I will be fucking furious. Where should we go first? Let's go to Selma Dmitrievich. I'm talking to Salma Dmitrievich. She's the artistic director of Grayscale Theatre. We're in a cafe near London Bridge. I ask her about her background. So I am from Croatia originally, and I started as a dancer before I did any theatre proper other theatre training. I'm a volleyball coach, and then I moved into dramaturgy. So I studied that for four years in Zagreb, which is basically an idea that you become a writer for TV screen and theatre. And then I started translating, moved to Glasgow, wrote there and translated there, and then at some point about five years ago figured out that the way new writing was functioning at the moment wasn't the right place for me. So Lauren and I set up Grayscale and moved to London and I started directing. I'm thinking, why move to the UK? Why move to Glasgow? They've got a fantastic theatre scene. It's probably that. I'll ask. I met a guy who I liked very much and he lived there. Oh, right. Anyway, I've asked to speak to Selma to find out her thoughts on the differences between UK and continental European theatre. Maybe she thinks that's a false distinction. And what's performance culture in Croatia like, I wonder? I've got no idea. I haven't worked there for about 15 years. So whatever I say now might have changed completely in the last 15 years, and I'll really annoy people who know much more about this than I do. But also I think, I don't think it's a sort of false distinction, but it's a very current one and we all kind of mean a similar thing which might not be what people in the continent mean when they think about it or talk about it and the stuff that's been in my head for so much over the last six months is 
where I think my impulses are different from British theatre making impulses. And I kind of see that as very close to Croatian or Eastern European tradition or impulse. Um, and I think for me there's two main things there. One is about the placement of a primary metaphor within a production and where it belongs. And then the other thing is about a tension between the text and the production. And is there a tension? Is there on purpose? Is there by accident? Okay, I want to know about that tension first. When I saw Grayscale's latest show, Gods Have Fallen and All Safety Gone, and then read the text afterwards, it was strange how clear the stage directions are about where it's set, a front room, and clear about the gender of the characters, but the production had none of that. It was stripped back, men played the women. Yet some were both wrote and directed. The same person writes the text, then tries to break it apart. How did she distance herself as director from herself as writer? Coming back to it six years later, kind of forgetting I wrote it and look at it as a director, I went, what did the writer want to be the heart of this play? For me, there's no point in writer saying one thing and then director coming and saying the same thing and the designer saying the same thing and the lighting and sound saying, and then we're all saying the same thing. If the text is saying one thing, I, as a director, taking that thing and not saying anything different, but giving just giving a layer that will make what the writer is saying more exciting, more physical, more present. For me, that's an exciting moment. I think for me that the best, the best description of that is if, if you take it to, to very small. So if you have someone in the text saying, I love you, I might direct that as someone saying I love you and then punching the other person. And then what sometimes happens is the writers in the room, they go, oh, I love that punch. So I'm going to change your love you to you prick. And then I go, but there's no tension now. But I think also the big, big difference between what I would call continental, what my instincts are, is directing outside of the rehearsal process. Sean and Scott, who are in Gods, they've been with us for five years. And Gods have been happening for three years on and off. So I did most of my directing in six or seven months in between when we were doing Gods which means that when there was View from the Bridge on, I bought tickets for them to come and see it with me. When Cremo was at Barbican, I bought tickets. When Sean had a show in Liverpool, I got on a train and went there and talked to him. So all this work has been done that when we walk into the room, they've spent five years together. They know each other. So they don't have to pretend that they're pissing each other off or that they've <laughs> done this millions of times. So for me, that's another, that's another important difference of, of having three years to go, I will make you into a family. Now, what was Selma saying earlier about a primary metaphor? So this is completely my theory, and I might disagree with myself in six weeks' time, but I, I, the, the feeling I have is that for kind of a traditional new writing British play, the primary metaphor is placed in the text. And with, with amazing writers, with David Gregg, it's, it's in many levels there. So it could be in, in outlying islands, you know, characters of bird watchers. Huge metaphor there. In San Diego, every single character he meets is called Amy. Brilliant. It's right there in the text. But reading that play on page, you can see that metaphor. He's taking care of it. It's his job in a certain theatre-making model. When director comes to direct that, they don't have to, they can, but they don't have to create another primary metaphor. They can just use that one and show it. So they can do literal staging. Where my instinct is, and where I think a lot of creation directors' instinct is, is that it's my job as a director to create a primary metaphor. You don't worry about it as a writer. So as a director, I go, I look at a text, 
I find what is currently the primary metaphor there and go, right, how do I amplify that? How do I make that not intellectual, not something that you need to understand or hear or think about? How do I make that visceral and active and physical in present? So you don't have to be clever. So I can put something in front of you and you'll get what the writing writer wanted you to get. Maybe I could create a primary metaphor in this interview. Detach myself from the recording somehow. That would be so clever. Oh wait, I'd better ask Selma another question. Has she seen more director-led theatre in the UK recently? Yes, absolutely, especially in the last five years. Well, there we go. What is next? Um, let's see what Annegret's up to in Berlin. Hello! 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 We're sitting in front of the Berliner Festspiele House. Theatertreffen is going on. Andrew Hayden is walking up to oh, us. The nick of time. Amazing. And I, like, I, was thinking... I, could, I could do some panting and then like, <gasps> sorry I'm late, guys. <laughs> Hi, <laughs> you started without me. So guys, you're all in Berlin. You normally aren't. So <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the things you've seen here in Berlin. Do you want to kick it off? Yeah, my name's Lee. I am a playwright who sometimes writes about theatre, not just for it. I, I mean, I've only seen two shows thus far at the Theatre Treffen which are uh, The Supplicants and uh, Why Mr R Runs Amok. And I'm seeing Atlas tonight. I mean, I thought Mr. Why Does Mr R Run Amok <laughs> completely left me bewildered and somewhat infuriated, but also somewhat exhilarated. Well, the story is based on a Fassbender movie that I haven't seen. And basically, it's about a man who works in a pretty mundane office job. He has a, a rather difficult relationship with his wife and child. And over the course of 15 or so scenes, we see him go from this kind of automaton-like figure to doing something quite violent and destructive. And the question is why he does that. But the performance style is incredibly bewildering and bizarre and strange and kind of brilliant as well. It's an experiment in alienation, an experiment in how you can emotionally disengage an audience from what is happening in a weird Lynchian way. There is a um, lip-syncing to recorded dialogue that means that the whole thing is kind of like a bit of a horror movie. So everybody on stage wears rubber masks and lip syncs to their own voices. I found it quite difficult, even with surtitles and even following a story probably quite well this time compared to my uh, other adventures in German theatre. I found it a mood-based piece that was unpleasant in places and boring mm. in places. Mm. But the fact that they held their nerve and it wasn't building up to some big cataclysmic event that changed the pace in some way, it, it was so flat and so... Cold. The act which the story culminates in, I think, is important in regards to how the director has chosen to stage it. For example, the act itself is the question, why? Why does this person do this thing? And we are actually invited to question it in a far more intellectual way than we would have questioned it if it had been a kind of histrionic, emotional yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. What I have been trained as an audience member to want is some big emotional or surprising change of pace and I actually quite appreciated them not doing that and continuing yeah. down that really low <laughs> key route because because it was a real experiment in what it is to feel something in a theatre. The pacing is extraordinary as well, it's glacial, it's so slow and it's so patient. I mean it demands you to be patient as an audience member just because... Nothing happens. Nothing happens and you describe it as lynching and it really did have that feel of the uncanny, that feel of something familiar and yet totally alien. Alright, we'll come back to you later. Let's go and talk to Holger Syme now. 
Well, it is, there I is think it's different. I think it's different, but I don't, I don't think theatre is totally unpolitical in the UK. I, mean, I think there's plenty of... What I don't think is there in the, in the UK as much as in Germany is the sort of overlap between middle-class, educated, habitual theatre-goers and an expectation that you might be presented with something possibly politically radical or certainly more radical than you might be. Do you think, I think, it's got to do... <laughs> I think it's got to do with the institution, where the money comes from. How free is it and how independent is it? How do we talk about the theatre we make? That's so different here in comparison to the UK. It seems to matter to people more. Right? It seems to matter to people who don't make theatre yes. more than in the UK. I sometimes feel like in the UK the only people who have those discussions is people who make theatre and theatre critics and a handful of newspaper readers. But it's a fairly isolated and sort of insulated community. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And obviously the role of the, the critic, I think, is completely different here. I think here the judgment has to do with how well a production established its own interpretive standards and goals and how well it then lived up to them. The question is really, like in reviews here, the question is really, was this, was this good or bad? Or rather, if, it's, if a critic says something was bad, then it's not because it didn't live up to the critic's expectations of how you do this particular play. Mm-hmm. Whereas Michael oh, Billington is really keen yeah, on saying, yeah. oh, you can't what, use this to the, discuss this because... Right, or what good acting yes. is, or anything like that. I mean, that doesn't really come into play. So if a production is about a particular topic that has some kind of political valence, I would expect a German critic to talk at some length about whether the production engages in the proper level of detail with that political impetus. You would expect them to do it, but there's yeah. really there's no way around it because what's happening politically and what's shown on stage is so is so linked. Like one of the right. examples is um, so we have Schutzbefohlen, which is part of the the Auswahl, the selection of the Theatertreffen, and then on the I think on the day its first evening, we get this news that um, Amelie Deufelhardt, who is a artistic director in Hamburg, the public prosecutor in Hamburg, started legal proceedings against her for violating the what was it yeah, immigration laws? Basically. Yeah, because she gave she did this uh, six month project where she basically housed five immigrants as part of an art project and. Yeah, there's no way that you can't, as a critic, you can't just ignore it. So right. it, it will come up. Yeah, I, don't, I haven't seen anything like that in the UK. Like, I don't think that kind of stuff happens. The way the shows come in, and you only have four weeks, six weeks to have that discussion, then goes away. And it's really rare right. that something stays on for long enough to... Whereas here, sometimes shows run for years and years. And well, but they don't run continually, right? So it's sort of a... I mean, that particular project ran for six months, basically, as a rest. <laughs> I mean, it was a sort of artist-in-residence kind of project, yeah. right? I'm trying to... I mean, there must be... There must be work somewhat like that in the UK, though. I mean, there's a long tradition of, of theatre that engages with politics in the UK. If you think about some Shakespeare productions from the 80s that quite explicitly were about Thatcher. Or if you think about, I don't know, something like Posh, mm-hmm. which is obviously, it's a political play, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's com- about class. It? It's, it's, about, it's a very comfy way of dealing with the issue, don't you think? And the way you could the just audience, sit there. Yeah, and, but the way the audience is confronted with it. And it's, it's again, and again, I hear this, this accusation level at theatre makers, especially in Britain, and I've heard it here, I was quite surprised by it, about uh, middle class people making middle and here over and over again, and I think, well, yeah, actually, it's true that that's what happens. But the idea of class is not as 
prevalent here, I don't no, think. No, it is. That's just a fact about class is totally it's completely different in Germany. That's Well, it is really interesting to me how much in the sort of recent discussion about where German theatre should go, it's not been about class so much as about ethnicity. And in the sort of absence, the Absolutely. absence, the absence of, of people of colour in many German theatres and so on. Just now we've had someone in Dresden, who's an artistic director in Dresden, he was challenged, he was on how many people with migration background do you have? And the answer was, well, it's difficult to change structures. And that again ties in with how institutions fund things. There's institutional racism, and I say that utmost no, care, but yeah, yeah it's, they have to address it, address it, but what actually changes? To a certain extent, German theatre is just a reflection of German society as a whole. This is a place that's changed dramatically in the last 10, 20 years. It's become a much more international country. It's become a much less white country. But only in certain but pockets. Only in certain... You're right, exactly. Only like when we're sitting in Berlin, and Berlin never... Like I left Germany 21 years ago, and I never want to come back, but I'm happy to be back in Berlin. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't really feel like the Germany I left. It's, it's, um, it's so bizarre that to have that outside perspective um, as a German. Obviously, I live in London, and I'm now back in, in Berlin. So it's, it's really strange to d- dive back in, and then... You just get thrown into this political mess, which uh, you weren't really exposed to. But it's so quickly that you soak it up. I've been here for two days, and I'm already <laughs> thinking, oh, my God, migration. <laughs> you know, that it's just, it's so there, and you can't evade it, which is great. Well, it's funny, though, right? Because it's not like it doesn't exist in Britain. I've had far more racist taxi drivers in Britain than I've ever had in Germany. I mean, at least in living memory. Like the conversations I've had about Polish plumbers <laughs> in British cabs, I would never had. I, mean, I would never have had here because people just. I mean, they might think things like that, but they wouldn't say them out loud. But the discussion, the theatre people, theatre makers—they're not around racism. It's just a different the structure of society, I suppose. I mean, the, the focal point of that has been blackfacing, and it's so difficult to divorce that discussion from a broader discussion about representational logic, what it means for an actor to be someone else on stage. And there's so much theoretical investment in that in German acting and German directing. It's very difficult, I think, for people here, for theatre makers, to divorce their general assumption that an actor can do whatever that actor chooses to do on stage. And that's just an absolutely essential element of what it means to be a stage performer, that everything Absolutely everything is allowed and anything goes. To then take certain aspects of that art and say, yes, but you can't do that. The moment you paint your face black, you're being racist. Mm-hmm. Which is an argument, I, compl- I understand it historically, I understand it culturally. I understand it in the sense that there is obviously an absence of the representation of people of colour in, in German ensembles. But I also understand why German theatre artists have a real problem with drawing lines like that. I don't think that has anything to do with racism. It, it, it leads to a racist outcome. Right. But I don't think it's motivated by racist So how do you think that, that discussion would then be... Discussion around blackfacing, what would that be like in Britain? Because I think, what, from sometimes what I see on stage, uh, British society hasn't really... Faced up, yeah. Uh, to, ...to their colonial past properly. <laughs> I love the idea that it's a, these two Germans here sitting in <laughs> Berlin, passing judgment... Two, two White Germans. Uh, that's right, two white Germans sitting in, sitting in Berlin, passing judgment of Britain. <laughs> Something has changed. <laughs> um, no, that's probably true, right? At the same time, I, think, I do think British theatre has 
got much further than German theatre in um, being somewhat more representative of British society as a whole, and that they're not so much in class terms, right? There's been obviously a lot of discussion in Britain recently about that, about the way that, that yeah, theatre schools and so on are, create barriers to working class talent and actors. Who, but I mean, if you think about the number of British actors of colour that have had major careers in theatre in the last two decades or so, there's nothing like that in Germany. Yeah. And they're just far more examples. I think that partly has to do, actually, it's, it's an outcome of Britain's colonial past, but there just are more. True. There's a much longer history of people of colour living in Britain as of being part of British society than there is in Germany. It's complicated, right? <laughs> Shall we end on that note? Sure. <laughs> Where do you want to go now? Do you want to go back to the critics at Theatre Treffen? All right, let's go there. Guys, what else have you seen? I and Andrew was there as well, saw the opening of the Uncle Vanya at the Gorky, which isn't part of Theatre Treffen, but was more, I think, from my perspective as somebody who's starting her journey down understanding German theatre, more what I had come to expect of German theatre than the shows that I've actually seen in Theatre Treffen because it was a classic text that had been taken apart a little bit and done in a kind of visually surprising way. Let's just lay our cards on the table and talk, go straight for the chickens. There was a fight scene in the show that they did with these two, I guess they're roosters, that were ostensibly there to represent the two characters that were fighting. The, the actors had started arguing on stage and these chickens had been kind of clucking around in the background for a little while. And then suddenly they both went over and they, they picked up their respective chicken and put them down in the front of the stage and almost tried to create this cockfight between them and what I really liked about that moment was I understood the parallel that we were trying to make like these two kind of posturing men trying to kind of fight to be on top in whatever the situation was and I'll be fighting somebody else a third person's girlfriend and they're both really smitten with her so they're fighting over a girl that they don't stand a chance with anybody. Yeah, and then obviously the, these these two chickens that they these two guys want to fight their corner for them, just kind of to totally just fuck off in the other yeah, directions. Yeah. The, the like they, they sniff no around on each other yeah. and then they just like peck off in different places. <laughs> yeah. And it's all just like the impotence of it is perfect. And that to me says something that I completely understand German theatre to be. It's, it is the unusual visual metaphor. That's exactly what Selma said. And that's not something that I've seen much of in the other two shows that we've yeah. seen. I haven't seen Uncle Vanya, but your question about what, what is it you come to expect from German theatre as someone who perhaps isn't very well versed in it. I think it's like a sense of disruption, like yeah. sp- spontaneity, because you put two chickens on stage, you can't, you're not going to be able to control what they do yeah. to each other. And it seems to me like a lot of German theatre likes to introduce elements which cannot be easily controlled or framed or harnessed, so it's kind of that sense of disruption and interruption as well. I don't know if it's a cliche and I don't know if I'm reading too much into what I understand the cliches of both theatre cultures to be but the importance of the text in the UK mm. means that it's much harder for theatre makers in the UK to to present those unusual metaphors, to decide to represent a stage fight with two chickens. It's too much of a deviation from the starting point that everybody is taught to respect. I think where that comes to the forefront, watching Shakespeare things uh, uh, in the UK, not all of them, but a lot of them are because they're so tied down by the text. And I know you've seen uh, Richard III. Yeah, I have right? to say, I 
Yeah, in, in defence of British Shakespeare, I mean, I don't find it boring. Obviously, I've been raised in the tradition of watching it, being raised in a tradition in the sense of coming to it really late, late 21, and then playing catch-up very hard, I guess. We present Shakespeare with, effectively with a really strong sense of story. Like, well, if you've seen the story done well, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how many of those really, like... Give, in an average year, you don't have to watch any given play more than once, probably. I mean, maybe to, and I could watch Hamlet. Probably I could watch it once a month and be happy because I think Hamlet's like great. The German thing of, I suppose, approaching the text as a director, not to tell the story of the text, but to tell a particular viewpoint, perhaps, and to tell that through an attack on the text, almost. Selma said that too. Like, I mean, the most extreme, I guess, for me, the most extreme living example is like Frank Kastoff, who only seems to stage Chekhov to demonstrate how much he hates the bourgeoisie. You know, it's like all these problems... That's a good the, enough Yeah, reason. yeah, the, bourge, the, bourge, the problems of the bourgeoisie are bullshit. And to prove that, I'm going to kill the three sisters like this. Well, this is such a generalisation, really, but I feel like when we British uh, theatre makers do the classics, we do them because we want to say, look at this classic, look how fucking great this classic is. We're going to do it in this maybe different way, but it's still a great piece of work, right? And the Germans go, look at this classic, it's all right, but actually we want to mess with it, we want to attack it, and we want to actually make a point. The, the whole kind of repertoire of German theatre, I think it's got, it's got such a, a stronger reliance on the classics and belief in them and acquaintance with them. Like, their canon is Yeah, the new stronger. writing culture isn't the same, Yeah, yeah, yeah. If something really big happens in Britain, we'll write a new play about it. And if something really big happens in Germany, they'll do Agamemnon about it. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. That happens in Britain yeah, as sure, well, sure. obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I've met an awful lot of young directors in London in the last couple of years who are hugely influenced by what's going on out here and are really inspired by the freedoms that directors have in this country. And on the flip side of that, I, I find it really interesting to imagine this like underground group of playwrights in Germany going talking about how awful it must be and how the British playwright is so respected and they're all going over to like see new work at the Royal Court and talking about what an exciting theatre culture yeah, it is yeah, yeah I think yeah. I mean I definitely know some German play, playwrights who have been kind of quite pleased that their intentions get more honoured yeah. in Britain and others who kind of go, well, this is, they, the director's done nothing with my play. They've just staged it as I wrote it. I mean, I, I, mean, I quite love the idea, really, of, of writing a play and then having a director really intervene in it. Mm. And I've had that happen before. As and long I, as you like what they do, obviously. You can disagree with the way in which a director chooses to approach your text, but ultimately I think a play goes on to have a longer life if, if the director has the yeah. freedom to say, this text is not sacrosanct. A couple of things to pick up on is, it's really interesting you say lots of British directors are inspired by the freedoms here. Yeah. I think if they're going to be properly inspired, they should be inspired by the restrictions as well. Like there's this utopian mm. idea of uh, German theatre. Yeah, there's money and there's this and there's that. Mm. But as a theatre maker, I like yeah, dropping in from the outside. That's all fine. But if you're a theatre maker here, to get yeah. to the point where you get that freedom, yeah. you would have done a lot of. What's the kind of grassroots DIY studio type? theatre out here is there is there like is yeah. there a group of people hiring rooms above pubs and putting there plays is, on there is a freie scene but one of the discussions you have here at Hertertreffen which is supposed to invite all the remarkable plays is that they're not getting invited 
and then the like, mainstream audience obviously don't get exposed to mm. them. I think there's much weird. more mi- mixing of yeah. these different scenes in, in Britain for sure. Yeah, I mean, on one level, it's there's that kind of bums on seats, audience-driven, please people drive. But at the same time, the fact that anyone can do anything, in theory, I mean, I know there's acres of privilege in British theatre, but in theory, anyone can raise the money, hire a room above a pub, get five stars in time and out, and mm. theoretically transfer to the BAC Critics' Choice season and get a career out of putting something on a, in a room above a pub with yeah. sponsorship that they've generated themselves. All right, Andrew, let's see if your plan works. How do I hire a room above a pub? Okay, Rebecca Jacobson now. She's also in Berlin. I'm on the sprawling seventh floor of a mint-colored building in Berlin Tempelhof, surrounded by pallets and cardboard boxes. The floor is covered in sawdust. It looks rough now, but soon this space will be an idyllic American-style suburb. Imagine white picket fences, astroturf, and an adorably retro diner. Welcome to Neufriedenwald, the home of a new immersive interactive theater production called The Shells. Loosely inspired by David Lynch's cult TV series Twin Peaks, The Shells invites visitors to spend four hours strolling the streets of Neufriedenwald where, and here's the rub, a pretty teenage girl has just been brutally murdered. The production, which features dozens of artists and performers from both Germany and the United Kingdom, runs in Berlin from June 13th to 20th. I sat down with co-directors Jos Poroff and Kirsten Brandt to learn more. What was the spark for the project? Two things, really. On the one hand... The fact that in Twin Peaks, of course, Laura Palmer says that she will see Cooper 25 years later. And 25 years later, when she says that, would be 2015. David Lynch thinks it's 2016, but (laughs) we did our own calculations. Way before there were ever talks of there being a third season. I mean, we've been working on this for over a year now. And so way before that ever happened, we thought that as people who love Twin Peaks, we thought that it would be a wonderful moment in time to actually revisit it that was the beginning part of it, to revisit it. And then as we started working on it more and more, it became more of a general inspiration and a ref- point of reference. Like it became, in the beginning, it was almost an obsession with the idea of revisiting something. With the revisiting was several, several points about yeah. it, right? There were things that we felt like weren't dealt with properly or that we felt like could, could be dealt with more profoundly. There were characters that we really loved in Twin Peaks and that we felt like needed much more of a voice and as we as we talked more and more about it it just moved away more and more from Twin Peaks and became its own universe. When it came together, when the medium and Twin Peaks came together, it was just so interesting to make such a cult phenomenon like reachable in, 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 in the sense that you could actually walk in and experience it. So the premise is that every year, for one week, tourists are allowed to come to Neufriedenwald. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, the doors are opened again, but a pretty teenage girl has just been murdered. Mm-hmm. So this is the event that precedes tourists as they, as they come into the space. What else can, can these tourists expect 
when they arrive. It's gonna be a unique experience for everyone. As we don't have a script, as everything will be improvised, each and every tourist or visitor can basically alter or influence the plot that is being developed as the performance is ongoing. So yes, you enter this town that in the beginning is very picturesque and that can even stay picturesque if you, for example, decide to just stay in the diner for your whole stay or just talk to the people who are very wel welcoming to you and very smiling and talkative. But then again, you can also venture into the more darker parts of the other cities of the town. So it's, it just very much depends on what your expectations are when you're entering the space. Um, also how open you are to actually interact with the performance, with the spaces, with the performers. We have an investigator in the town, we have a BKA agent, which would be the equivalent of the FBI. But that investigator actually lost interest in the investigation at some point because the town was just so nice. So the visitors can actually take on that role of an investigator, well, whatever they want. If they want to solve a murder mystery, they can do that. You said it's not scripted. How do performers prepare or rehearse for, for something that is immersive? Audience members or tourists come in four hour blocks, which is quite a long time. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah trying to create and then act out mini scenarios that could actually happen during the performance, trying to deal with possible escalation situations. In order to fill these four-hour slots, um, there needs to be a lot of meat on these character bones. The only thing we, that we've stuck to telling people is that they can never break character. Mm -hmm. When we first talked about the, about the project, we started thinking of things that are very, very uncomfortable for people. And in the end, we came to the conclusion that the most uncomfortable thing is actually to be confronted with yourself. And that's the wonderful thing about having um, a ratio of two ticket holders for every performer. So it's a very intense, very almost like, not quite one-on-one, -on -one, but two-on-one -on -one experience. So um, it means that those moments can and will occur. We um, try to connect Neufriedenwald and the play to the perhaps um, darker parts of, of the history in, in, in Berlin or Brandenburg area. So you're interested in exploring ideas of violence and also violence behind these idyllic facades and then also the role of gender within violence and exploring things through a feminist lens. Violence is such, a, such an important topic for us and for the play, especially how you not only how you deal with violence that is um, socially normed, but also violence that happens behind closed doors. That kind of is visible for everyone, but that is never addressed. We're trying to create an atmosphere that is very much informed by violence. You can't avoid being confronted with violence in the play. Violence is ever-present, and if you're not, if you feel like you haven't been confronted with violence, it's just because you chose to not to not actually position yourself. You choose, you choose to be neglectant. What we're aiming for as well, and this is something where perhaps it's, it's useful to go back to Twin Peaks, is one thing that was a big starting point with how Laura Palmer in Twin Peaks is killed when Bobby at the funeral says that um, the, we all killed Laura Palmer, that moment when he says it, which is not really ever gone back to very much. For us, we got quite stuck with the we all killed Laura Palmer idea. So then we moved away from Laura Palmer, but this idea of how Perhaps an entire town is in some form or another witness to, silent accomplice in, or direct, direct abuser 
of this one person who then in the end falls victim to it. And so it was this idea of shared shared guilt. Can a space be guilty at all? How does that work out? It's hard to not hear mention of collective guilt and not think about German history. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's true. I mean, it's, that's the thing. I think it's a very universal thing. And I feel like, whereas universal in the sense of not confusing the specificity of the Holocaust, but um, universal in the sense of what it involves more than one or two people, perhaps. What is it that actually makes this, you can call it a mob mentality, you can call it a communal um, experience, whatever it is, but what actually facilitates yeah. this going on. And then the question, and that's where the gendered part of it comes in, or perhaps the feminist part of it comes in, how does power fall? And who ends up um, more commonly being the victim of gendered violence then? Also, and especially referring to German history, how does it change a place that has been the site of violence? How do they, or even the people, the generations after them, deal with the violence that happened that wasn't actively inflicted by them? Whereas in my Friedenwald, people just turn a blind eye to what happens. The question is whether it is so different to have school classes go over the Holocaust every and every and every year in the same in the same way. To have it to have an overflow of information that actually leads up to um, people being very getting numb to mm. what what actually happened. It just becomes that very vague term history. It's history, it's something in the past. In in, in a certain way people in their Friedenwald, it's there seems to be no way of dealing with it without actually being ignorant to a certain extent. There always seems to be an end to utopia. Utopia always seems to be very closely connected to dystopia. And it's the same with Neufriedenwald. You know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. I've had, I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this, this is one of the best. That show sounds really good. Right, well, back to Anna Gret. Before I came here, and I've only been here a few days, I had this, I don't know, is, is German theatre, that's a question, is German theatre more political than British theatre? I don't think is so. This rubbish? I think the way it does politics is very different. Yeah, yeah it's, completely. It's not didactic in the same way that perhaps a lot of British theatre is. I mean, British theatre is no longer, particularly new writing, is no longer as didactic as it once was. I mean, you look at... I mean, I wasn't around at this point, but you read about the plays that were coming out in the 70s and 80s when things seemed a bit more left is good, right is bad, and, and now we're not so certain of that, or, or if we are, we're not quite comfortable writing those plays anymore. But with the exception of The Supplicants, which felt very didactic, but in the right way, in my opinion, I mean, I, I yeah. thought that was a But that was, I mean, that was a very... That felt very rare for... Yeah, yeah I, I, because it was so kind of... Yeah. On the nose about the problems it was confronting. I think um, I think John Theatre is political in its form. I think it's deconstructionist in the sense that it, it doesn't want uh, an audience of three hundred people sitting around thinking or feeling the same thing for reasons that are probably cultural. Yeah. Whereas in British theatre, yeah. we're quite happy to go. Oh yeah, that yeah, capitalism is bad. So let's go to the pub and get yeah. a beer over it. I mean, it's, I'm, I, yeah, you know. I'm much more used to being told what to think in the UK theatre yeah. world. I'm much more used to to coming out and knowing for definite what the intention, what the political intention of the theatre makers was. And I think here, what was surprising about Dishits Before and is that I came out going, I know what these people think and I know how they want me to behave in my life. And yet, I can't imagine anyone doing that in Britain, taking the risks that production took in terms of its invocation of certain things. I don't think a British director would touch that. 
Thank you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. That Thank was, you for uh, having fun. us on the ground. It's Thanks. been a pleasure as nice always. Thanks for letting us sit on your nice warm lawn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was quick. Right, well, we're almost at the end, but let's give the final few minutes of this month's podcast to the fantastic Chris Thorpe. Do you think the way theatre makers talk to each other in Germany here, or especially that, that Stuckermark experience you had, is different to how you work? You look at the huge variety of theatre and performance forms that are here, and you think, well, there's certainly a common feeling to a lot of it, but there, there doesn't appear to be a kind of orthodoxy in the sense that people are not allowed to do certain things. I don't know, uh, Andrew Hayden, I think it was Andrew Hayden, he talked about the idea that British theatre tries to become more German, and in some ways German theatre tries to become more British, and actually the realisation is that the centre of theatre is then hovering somewhere over whatever's geographically in the middle of those places. Yeah, somewhere in the Channel or like a small village in in the east of Belgium. And I think that's probably true, you know, in that there are, there are elements that are probably not useful in the way it's done here, but there are certainly elements that are not useful in the way it's done now. And what are you thinking about now? What's, what's next? I've just finished a version of the play for the Royal Court that will be on soon, which is nothing really formally like a, a play, but definitely is a development of the way I write into that particular theatre. I'm writing a new version of Beowulf for uh, Kids Theatre in London for the Unicorn Theatre, the Young People's Theatre. That would be great. Um, I'm thinking a lot about what it takes from someone to stand up and say that their country is getting it wrong at the moment. And there are, there are a number of kind of thoughts and avenues about that that are slowly coming together in a new play, a new, the new piece that I'll make with Rachel over the next couple of years. Because you did Tory Corps, which is a very angry way of... Yeah, well, we'll still be doing it now. Yeah, I was, I was wondering if... We nearly had to change it to Labour. <laughs> Lucy wanted to call it Hard Labour. Because <laughs> in six months, inevitably, you know, a Labour government would have been as compromised as a Tory government. Probably more so because they would have actually been genuinely trying to change things. So there'll always be a place for really loud music to try and hold people to account. You know, it's five more years of Tory government if you think that maybe being angry, like we need to now find a different strategy. Anger isn't a constant. Anger isn't a strategy that you then choose and employ consistently you know, every single day. There are a number of strategies that you employ and it's not the fact that anger should be employed or not employed. Of course it should be employed because there will be many fucking things to be angry about. And if I'm here in Berlin next year or in two years' time and I'm sitting here as a person who is not part of Europe anymore in some very important ways, I will be fucking furious about it. And I will very clearly try in my own way to stop that from happening. You know, anger is brilliant. I think what people have realised post-election is that a lot of that anger has been misdirected. You know, Tory Corps is very, very angry, but it's a very specific kind of very narrowly directed anger, which is for a specific purpose. It's not actually trying to make the case to the people who are fucking up our health service and failing to care for our disabled people in Britain. It's not trying to make the case to them that they should change. It's holding their words up with a different backing track and saying, can you see how 
fucking pernicious and self-serving and uncaring these words are and that is a good directed form of anger there are a whole load of things that aren't angry that have to go on around that in order to to actually make change happen so that the anger in Tory court becomes less necessary I'm not convinced it will become less necessary in the last the next five years but we certainly need to find different strategies for how we talk to people and there's a whole load of people who are who have been angry or have been talking about politics who are maybe realising that they've been talking to themselves or the wrong people and the wrong people being people who are like themselves I'm not making a case that we all have to go out and attempt to engage with the people dismantling our country on their own terms I don't think we have to do that but we certainly have to find a different way of having conversations of a different tone of voice it's very, very difficult, as I discovered in confirmation, but it's very difficult, but it should, it should be attempted to get across that gulf between people. Because otherwise it's going to get worse. I think it is going to get worse anyway. But, you know, let's try and at least make it less fucking worse. Did this podcast make you feel less worse? Probably. Well, at least you now know all there is to know about European theatre. Anyway, that conversation with Chris Thorpe was part of a longer discussion, which you can find on the Theater Treffen blog. Uh, the link will be in the description. And that's all for this week. So, my thanks to Selma Dmitrievich, Holger Syme, Rebecca Jacobson, Chris Thorpe, Megan Vaughan, Andrew Hayden, Lee Anderson, Kirsten Brandt, and Joss Porath. We'll be back next month. Thanks for listening. Bye! Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.